This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of MDT. I'm Dr Joe Preston, a consultant geriatrician in London. And I'm Dr Ian Wilkinson, a consultant geriatrician in East Surrey Hospital in Redhill. And this episode we are going to be looking at pressure areas. Yeah, and specifically pressure care and pressure area prevention really. Mm -hmm. And the faculty members joining us in planning this episode are Claire Watson, who is a practice development nurse in Brighton, and Wendy Grosner, who is a nurse lecturer. And this week we're going to have a think about some of the pathophysiology behind pressure sore development. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try and work out why certain areas of the body are at higher risk than others. We will try and develop an understanding as to the requirements for repositioning and changing of positions Mm -hmm. for patients. We're going to describe some of the influences of the ageing process on pressure area risk. And importantly, how to spot when someone's at risk or the development of an early part of a pressure sore. Mm -hmm. We're also going to recognise the influence of personal choice on pressure area development. Mm. So, for example, if you have a really exciting pair of shoes that really hurt, you have capacity to make a decision to wear those and damage your feet absolutely allowed to. But first of all, we're going to go through some little bits that we spotted on social media Mm. this week. Yes. Uh, And shall I kick off this week then? So I saw a really nice poster on Twitter this week, actually. Yeah, yeah. um, That was from the Nottingham University Hospitals. And it starts off at the top with a question and says, what's the difference between these two patients? And then on the left is a photo of an elderly lady in a hospital bed. And on the right is a photo of a slightly younger-looking gentleman walking around the hospital using a stick. Mm. And under the photo on the left, it says this person's at higher risk of infection, a loss of aerobic function, and they have a longer stay in hospital. And on the right, this person has a quicker recovery, they're more able to maintain a normal routine, and they return home sooner to their loved ones. And then they say that the answer is it's time to get up and dressed, and patients want to be at home, not in hospital. And they're using the hashtag end PJ paralysis. And I just thought that was really nice uh, about sort of a reminder of trying to get all of our patients up and out of bed and dressed and returning to something like normality rather than being a patient in a hospital bed. Yeah. I have seen that um, hashtag being used quite a lot on Twitter um, alongside the red to green hashtag, which is also on that poster, um, which is about uh, red days are days that do not add value to this patient's journey and green days are days that do. I'm trying to help you to work out how you can streamline getting someone home quicker and adding value to their whole stay. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Mine is slightly less, well, not serious, um, just something that tickled me a little bit yesterday that I saw on Twitter, which was from Ollie Minton, who is a palliative care consultant at the hospital that I work at. And it was uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek about a Cochrane review that had been done and published about dance movement therapy in patients with dementia. Mm -hmm. 
And so Cochrane, we've talked about before, it does these big um, systematic reviews. They're very methodological, they're quite big usually, and they're, so they, you can really trust what they say. Um, and they've done this big thing and you read the whole introduction and basically in the systematic review they didn't find any studies that they could include. <laughs> and that just amused me. Um, so there were some that looked at dance, but none that actually involved a, specifically a dance movement therapy practitioner. So the conclusion was there is no evidence, <laughs> which made me laugh. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? it? It's sort of that, what question are you asking? And you've got to make sure you ask yeah, the right question. I feel like that's something that they could have maybe identified before they started, but maybe that was their point. I don't know, but still, it amused me. Cool. So if you've got anything that you would like us to mention or you think we other people need to know about, then please do uh, send it to us. And you can contact us via Twitter at MDT underscore podcast via Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. You can email us directly. There's a link on the website and it's info at the hearing aid podcasts.org.uk. And the website is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And on the website are these podcasts, but also some podcasts about SBAR communication mm-hmm. from a course that I run in the southeast. And then also at some point in the future, the very near future. The very near future, there will be other podcasts there. And that, that's an exciting project that we've mm. got coming that you will hear more about yes. over coming weeks. So on to the main content of today, which is pressure areas. I'm Amy. I'm a physio on a senior health ward. Um, talking about pressure areas, uh, one thing that physios need to do as soon as we get patients up in on the ward is to see how they can move and try and assess how we can get them mobile on the ward to get them out of bed. Um, it's a lot of education to the patient about why we want them to keep changing position, keep moving, getting up out of bed, and also to the nurses on the patient's ability to move so they they can encourage the patient during the day when we're not around to try and prevent it. Um, We also have to think about it in discharge planning because we need to think about if the patient is at risk about pressure relieving equipment that we want the patient to go home with such as a mattress or a pressure cushion um, just to prevent the pressure ulcer from forming. So I am one of the nurse in Habitin Ward. I'm one of the senior staff nurse. So now I'm going to tell how the patient, what we're going to do to the patients if they are at risk of pressure sore. So first thing, we have to check the skin every two to four hours, especially the pressure areas that is really bony, or that's our routine to check two to four hourly, and then check the water low if it is very high, so we have to order an air mattress. Encourage the patients to sit out every day, morning, twice, morning and afternoon. If there are threats of pressure source, we have to order an air mattress through the porter or to the equipment library. So patients are at risk of pressure source, especially if they are not eating. We are at risk of pressure source, especially if they are old and also sick patients. Do you know if there's a, an official title for what they should be called? I different don't know if there is. Different different things. Things, yeah, so the sort of things you might hear are pressure injuries, pressure ulcers, mm-hmm. pressure sores, the cubitus ulcers, bed sores used mm. to be the name that yeah. people use. I think there is a definition from UPAP. From UPAP, yeah, which is the European Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel, um, which is a pressure injury to the skin and or underlying tissue, usually over a bony prominence, mm-hmm. 
as a result of pressure or pressure in combination with shear. And we're going to go through some of those bits individually as we as we go through. So in the UK, all pressure areas should be documented and graded using the um, recognised grading system um, created by UPAP, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, and that's what NICE recommend as well. One thing that comes up quite often is the difference between moisture lesions and pressure areas. Mm. We're going to put a table about this in the show notes as well, but we're just going to quickly run through a couple of the key differences between pressure areas and moisture lesions. Um, so moisture lesions are obviously moist, and they tend to be in areas where you would find moisture. So perhaps if there's some incontinence, it might be over the buttocks or in the natal cleft, um, whereas pressure areas tend to be understandably places of high pressure, so over bony prominences. And there's, the shape is sometimes different. Mm-hmm. Moisture lesions often, you may have multiple wounds, and they tend to have a diffuse edge as the yeah. skin's got moist and sort of swollen and then, then ruptured, whereas pressure ulcers tend to be a fairly distinct shape. Yeah, The shape itself can change, but the shape tends to be fairly mm. obvious, and the edges are particularly quite sort of crisp often, I guess. Mm. And pressure areas can get necrotic tissue, whereas moisture lesions don't. Yep, and moisture lesions tend to be quite superficial, Yeah, whereas pressure areas can be really quite deep. Yeah, And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So why do they happen? Well... <laughs> It's pressure, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's pressure over a bony prominence. So thinking about sort of bits of bone that stick out, so it's things like the sacrum, ischial tuberosity, the heels, mm-hmm. the elbows, if someone's leaning on their arms a lot. And they can appear anywhere that the tissue becomes compressed. So also under things like plaster casts, uh, splints, arm slings, crutches. Mm. I've seen them under people's glasses, mm. around their nose with nasal cannulae. Mm. And it's anywhere that the pressure is greater than the tissue perfusion pressure, Mm. which is really capillary pressure, actually. So the pressure doesn't need to be huge over a long period of time. And you can see that as well, can't you? If people have been lying on the floor for a long time, you might see them in more unusual areas, but the pathophysiology is the same or the reason is the same. So if someone's been lying on their side on the floor and not able to get up for some time, you might see them on their shoulder or on their knee, but it would still be technically a pressure ulcer. Yep. And the pressure forces are made worse by the presence of moisture mm-hmm. and factors relating to the individual sort of physical condition. We're going to talk through things some of those like a little bit later. Reduced mobility or then nutrition, stuff like that. But as you say, we'll, we'll come up with that a little bit later on. Mm. So the best thing that you can do, if it's possible, is to get patients to get up and move for themselves and do as much as they can for themselves. Um, to not be passive in hospital where at all possible as part of their rehabilitation or if at home um, arranging things so that they can get up don't necessarily give them a microenvironment if it's obviously if that's the safest thing to do then that might be what you need to do but actually not limiting that person's ability to get up and around to do things and if the pressure is not relieved for a long period of time the damage will extend down to the bone Mm -hmm. now there's two schools of thought about how pressure's ulcers and pressure sores develop mm, it's interesting this yeah and i'll put a, a link way. to an australian a really nice australian article actually mm. talking through this the article's written to provoke debate and, and i think it will and the first is that uh, i think that the, the commonly viewed way is that the pressure ulcer develops on the skin and then progresses backwards towards the bone and they call that the top to bottom model mm. there is also a theory that the pressure obviously if you're applying pressure from bone through to the chair surface or the bed surface, there may well be ischemia at both sides of that. 
So it's possible that the pressure damage and the ischemia can develop at the bone end and then progress outwards, mm. which sometimes explains why you have what appears to be quite a small wound on the outside. But as that becomes necrotic and develops, it can be a, quite a large wound mm. on the inside. And quite often the discoloration around it is much bigger. And that's called the bottom to top. Mm. Which I, I quite like. Theory. I haven't really thought about it that way until I, until you were telling me about this when we were reading. It makes a lot of sense. There's no reason why it should just be the top. You know, the pressure is from both sides, as you say. So that's quite a conceptually quite an interesting way to think mm. about it, I think. It's, it's not just what you can see on the surface. So you do have to keep this in mind. There might be damage underneath, even if you can't see anything. And there's another thing that's often not really talked about in the literature around skin and pressure ulcer development and that's the the role of reperfusion injury mm. so if you it, it's quite well known in in vascular disease and in trauma that but if you have made an area of tissue hypoxic you get a lot of inflammatory cytokines that develop there and then when you rapidly reperfuse that area with blood the toxins and such like come out and can cause damage to themselves and there's a, a theory with, with also pressure sores that maybe the development is due to a series of sort of small reperfusion injuries mm. over time, uh, or at least they exacerbate the injury that may be there. Either way, you get a cone-shaped ulcer with the widest part close to the bone and the narrowest part at the body surface. Mm. So you might see that as a non-blanching erythema, so when you press it, it doesn't go away, or an area of superficial skin loss on examination that suggests that there isn't really that much involvement at the surface, but it doesn't actually provide much indication for how much no. is, is damaged underneath it. And pressure ulcers are quite a common harm in hospital, aren't they? Um, they're one of the four harms that are recorded in the NHS safety thermometer, which is something that we use uh, in pretty much all hospitals as an improvement tool for measuring and monitoring and analysing patient harms. Um, not just in hospitals, actually in care homes, um, community nursing, it's reported on a monthly basis as a nice recommendation. Mm. So it's quite nice. So you can see if an area particularly is having a lot of pressure areas, you might need to do a bit of work um, with everyone working in that area to improve the knowledge and the care that they're providing. It's also uh, part of the data set for the National Hip Fracture Database, a number of other things, just showing how important it is. The wider picture, yeah. yeah. And there was some work written down quite a while ago now back in 1987 and then backed up again in 1988 mm. uh, by Hibbs saying that 95% of pressure ulcers are avoidable mm. and our faculty have gone back through and looked at this haven't they? Yeah. Well let's just say that there's scanty evidence about whether or not 95% of pressure ulcers are avoidable. It, yeah. it kind of makes intuitive sense doesn't it that if you keep people moving and you relieve the pressure on the skin you should be able to avoid the pressure source. Yeah but that value 95% has kind of become um a staple in 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 fact but actually it isn't it's not actually in the evidence that 95 isn't quite as robust as it sounds like it, it is in fact you know so much so some people recently in the midlands went back and tried to look at this 95 percent hypothesis mm. didn't they and the results of their study found that they felt just over 50 percent of pressure sores of grade three to four so quite severe ones were avoidable mm. And we'll talk about what grading means mm. a little bit later. Uh, but there's quite a bit of evidence around perioperative pressure relief, isn't there? Mm. And in the vast majority of studies, um, they focus on adults, though, uh, not specifically older adults. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a gap there when we start to look at prevention. And we'll talk about the skin of older adults 
in a little while mm. because I think that's important because there is a distinction there between sort of younger and older adults. Yeah, I think as healthcare professionals, we all have a duty to prevent harm. Um, especially if it can be avoidable. So next we're going to talk a little bit about what we can, um, how you can identify people that might be at higher risk of developing pressure areas and pressure ulcers and then what you might do about it. So NICE recommend a few factors, um, but they're a little bit vague. So they say you should consider general health. doesn't really help that much. No. Age, reduced mobility, nutritional status and incontinence. I think those last three no one would argue with. It also recommends that you use the Waterloo scoring system to assess someone's risk for pressure damage. And again, we're going to put that in the show notes for you to have a look at. I'm sure a lot of you use it regularly already. Um, this is something the nurses listen will be quite a fay with, I think. Very familiar with, yeah. But some of the other healthcare professionals may know you know, less about. Mm. But I think it's, you know, it's important for everybody to know, isn't it? I remember as a house officer, my first ever job, and my consultant turning around to me and saying, what's this man's Waterloo score? And I looked at him really blankly, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And he just handed me this little card <laughs> with the Waterloo on it. And then that was my job to do that for everybody as we went around back in the day. Anyway, so you can split the risk factors, perhaps with more nuance, into extrinsic and intrinsic, yes, can't you? you can. So thinking about the, and we've done this quite a few times. We've done this with falls. Yeah, I like this kind things. of division. Yeah. Think about the person and then think around it. Yeah. So should we start with the intrinsic factors first? Yes, yeah. I think people first always. Yeah. Um, so intrinsic factors are things like, do they have reduced mobility? Are they walking around less than they usually do? Or overall, are they unable to walk around as much as they would like to be able to? Do they have impaired sensation? So can they sense that they need to move? And then are they able to move? Are they currently ill? Do they have a high temperature? Um, parexia? Some medications, in particular steroids, can alter uh, skin function. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Age affects how skin functions as well. Reduced level of consciousness and cognitive state. Dehydration. Incontinence. Having had previous pressure sores, because mm -hmm. it kind of highlights that there's a, a risk there. If someone's got pain particularly pain that's stopping them moving around or stopping the ability of staff to reposition somebody very easily. Or repositioning themselves. Yeah. Vascular disease. So mm -hmm. if your blood flow to an area of the body is not good anyway, it's going to intuitively require less, it's going to be less able to cope with pressure mm -hmm. uh, and then reduce nutritional levels. Mm. And I think that's multi-pronged the malnutrition isn't it one is that if you're quite thin you're not going to have as much of a buffer of protection on your skin but also your ability to repair yeah. and normal immune system will be affected yeah. as well and then the extrinsic factors we've got a bit more control over these and there's three key ones really and then a fourth that adds in mm. so the key ones are pressure shear and friction mm -hmm. the pressure is the first and the cornerstone of it really is um, you have to have some form of pressure and that pressure has to be great enough to cause ischemia. So it's got to be over capillary pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be there for a little while. But a little while isn't actually that long. There's some studies that will show that you can develop ischemia to an area of tissue within half an hour. So the pressure doesn't need to be there for a long time. Mm. The next is shear, where the skin is being pulled in two different directions. So this might be if you were moving someone up a bed on a sheet then you could cause a bit of shearing if the skin goes the skin is kind of stuck to the sheet and you pull that up and gravity is pulling the the body down then actually that creates a tension across the skin 
Um, so that's something to be very careful of is, is moving patients up the bed that way. And then the third is friction, which is the rubbing of two two surfaces. I'm rubbing my hands together yeah. here. It's not very helpful. <laughs> you can't see it, no. but it is. And then the last sort of one that adds into that is moisture. Yeah. And moisture makes both the, the shear and the friction worse for the skin. Mm-hmm. Now, if that wasn't nerdy enough already, we're going to go into a bit of a nerd alert here. In this part, we're going to talk a bit more about the pathophysiology in the skin and what happens to that as it ages and why that makes older skin more predisposed to breakdown. So as we get older, the integrity of the skin alters. So there are two main layers to the skin, aren't there, Jo? Yes. And the outer layer is the... Epidermis. That's it. And the inner layer is the dermis. It is. And the epidermis gets thinner as we get older, which means that the sort of protective outer layer is not so there. And so the skin is more susceptible to damage from really mechanical injury. Mild injuries, yeah, so yeah. things like moisture, friction and trauma, the sort of mm-hmm. thing we're talking about. And then as we age, you get a flattening out of the dermo-epidermal junction. Which is the bit between the epidermis and the dermis. Yeah, which makes it more fragile and susceptible to shear forces. And I mm-hmm. think that's to do with the collagen uh, mm. binding changing. And it can mean that when you stretch the skin, you cause damage to blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the hands and mm-hmm. the skin of people we look after. Mm. But that's, it's not only that. There's also a reduction in thickness of the dermis mm, by, by about, about 20%. 20%. And that's what makes the uh, skin look kind of paper thin when you see that appearance that you quite often see with older adults. So skin is the biggest organ in the body and its function is to protect the rest of the body. And it does that through sensations to pain, temperature control, moisture retention, lots of other things. But ageing causes thinning of the dermis, so you get reduction in blood vessels, nerve endings and collagen, and so therefore less ability to protect the body from those things. And I think looking at someone's skin and telling their age is kind of hardwired into us. I remember going to a really great talk um, by a professor of geriatric medicine who showed a slide of four generations of family. And it was just their hands, so the females of the family, just their hands put together. And just by looking at the hands, you can tell the order of the age. And it's not even something you have to think about. You know, it just it comes naturally to us mm-hmm. as humans. And I, I just think it's really, really interesting obviously from an evolutional point of view important for some reason for us to be able to detect age from skin but i don't know anyway the point is skin changes as we get older (laughs) Uh, there's not very much research into the actual molecular mechanisms involved in pressure ulcer development which is surprising given how prevalent they are Um, it really surprised me i went back and and tried to find some and and this one study was really the only thing that we could find Mm. do you want to tell us a bit more about it yeah so so it was a study that looked at uh, a model of looking at different ages of skin and the effects of uh, pressure damage on, on the ages of skin. And it found that ageing contributed to rapid morphological changes mm-hmm. and a decrease in inflammasome proteins in response to tissue damage, which suggested that there was a decline in the inflammatory response to things like pressure damage in older people, which they wondered whether or not that would contribute to the pressure ulcer pathogenesis. Mm. Well, that was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. yeah. I think it's important to have a think about how we grade pressure sores. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of pressure grading systems out there. They all follow a fairly similar pattern. Yeah. 
and you should use whatever one that your trust or hospital or practice uses and you should be familiar make sure that, that you're familiar with that but they all tend to start with a non-blanching erythema mm -hmm. so that's a redness that when you put your finger on it and press doesn't go away and then they progress to deep tissue loss and generally it's graded by each layer that yeah. you've gone through so the deepest being a down to bone because they're generally over bony areas that's where it will usually end and there's some nice resources around them from Healthcare Improvement Scotland. Mm. And we'll put a link to those in the show notes. Yeah. Um, and there's some quite good sort of visual posters and things. They're, they're quite nice. Okay, so moving on to how you can prevent pressure injuries from occurring or to try and minimise them from getting any worse. And really, the key is to take away the pressure. And the only way to really do that is by repositioning. So making sure that there isn't sustained pressure in one area for too long. Yeah. Um, so NICE gives some guidance on this and they talk about positioning in terms of frequency, in terms of the position that you use and um, in devices that you might use to help. Yeah, and they say that for patients that are being assessed as at risk, we should try to reposition them every four hours. Um, and for those that are not at risk, every six hours. Mm. Although some of our faculty have kind of said that actually in their practice, every two hours is might be what you need uh, more routinely for someone that's really quite high risk. Yeah, and I think the, the NICE guidelines, the and I think it bears out what we've been saying actually, is that the their guidelines really came from six fairly low quality studies mm. and comparing one study to the next, the methods yeah. weren't really comparable. Um, one of the studies was carried out 27 years ago and used rolled up towels as an adjunct for pressure relief, which... You know, from clinical practice, we now know doesn't really help yeah. as it's still applying pressure. Yeah. And one of the other studies was 12 years old and used sheepskin blankets and water mattresses, which, you know, again, aren't really yeah. in routine use at the moment. No. And kind of if you look at those six studies, they're not very precise in regards to what the frequency of positioning should be. So it's a recommendation, um, but just to know it isn't particularly evidence-based recommendation. And so you do need to alter that for your patient. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things with all guidelines mm. is they can only use the evidence that's out there. Available, yeah. Yes, so anyone that's looking for a study, <laughs> there's one in there, isn't there, about you know pressure management yeah. and uh, risk factors and things like that. There's scanty evidence on that. Yeah. And it becomes harder, I think, the longer that we practice without evidence, it becomes harder to go back and do the original research yeah. because there's such you a body of... established usual practice. Of usual practice, yeah. Mm. And just to kind of visualise this a little bit, if any of you have tried to just lie very still and not move for a while and see how long it takes you before something on your body starts to become uncomfortable and it will definitely be less than two hours. Oh, yeah. It'll be minutes. It'll be minutes, won't it? Yeah. So anyone who is particularly bored can pause the podcast now. Yes, lie on the floor. Do that and then let us know how long you last for and we will do a spot uh, poll of listeners. So that's the frequency of turning. And then the actual position that people are in. Yeah, so NICE don't actually uh, recommend specific positions. Um, but Claire, who's one of the nurses on our faculty, um, got very into this and found some Swedish research looking at the different uh, lying positions that you can be in and the pressure exerted at each mm. position and found that the most pressure was exerted at a 30-degree lateral tilt. So that's when you're slightly on your side. Yeah. Not when you're all the way on your side. Yeah, as opposed to when you're flat on. Yeah, 
as you say, which you would expect to have the highest level of pressure, but apparently doesn't affect blood flow as much as 30 degrees. Maybe it's because at 30 degrees, you've got a lateral force as well as a compressive force. So you've mm. kind of got a, a shear force as well as a sort of pressing, whereas when you're at 90 degrees, it's just pushing straight down into the bed. Maybe. I wonder if it's because you're over a smaller, you're maybe. exerting over a yeah. smaller contact area. Yeah. The reference for that paper, and it's in the Journal of Advanced mm. Nursing, um, will be in the show notes, so you can go and have a look. And anyone with some better um, mechanics knowledge, <laughs> let us know what you think of that. Devices, there are lots of different um, mattresses on the market, and I think you have to work out which one's the right for your patient. And again, you'll have local guidelines as to mm. what's available in your trust. And the key point about all of the mattresses is that the, or the air mattresses, that the movement of the mattress relieves the pressure in sort of a sequential way around yeah. the patient. It will never take away your need to reposition the person manually. It just helps to minimise the damage in between. And we said that the risk factors were pressure, friction, shear and moisture, and it mm. only really works on the pressure. Yeah. The friction, shear and moisture uh, risk factors are still there, mm. as are all of the intrinsic risk factors. So it's only sort of looking at one bit mm. of what is something that's quite multifaceted. Yeah. So you said there's lots of different things that are feeding into someone developing pressure areas. So we thought we'd talk about a couple of initiatives that we found um, that you might like to look up and we'll put in the show notes um, of people who've come up with ways to recognise people who have or at risk of pressure areas and kind of put that into practice as how to manage that. And one of them is called the Skin Bundle, which is two S's, and that stands for Skin, Surface, Keep Moving, Incontinence, Nutrition. Those elements come from the best practice from NHS England's Stop the Pressure campaign, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and there are lots of other campaigns around, so things like React to Red, Your Turn, Stop the Pressure. And basically the aim of all of these is to increase knowledge amongst all healthcare professionals about how to prevent pressure areas. So I think that's everything that we want to say on pressure sores and pressure ulcer prevention. But if you've got any good resources, any fact sheets, any further information you want to direct people to, please do let us know. Yeah. So as we said, this is an area that's free of robust evidence. So we kind of have to rely on good practice so let us know anything that you do anything that you know of locally send it to us on twitter at mdt underscore podcast via facebook facebook.com forward slash mdt podcast or you can email us directly on our website which is www.hearingaidpodcast.org.uk the mdt podcast So now it's the time of the week for our MD teaser, our catchily titled MDT item guessing game, where Joe and I have been given a card by Tappy, our clinical fellow who works with us. Mm -hmm. And on this card is an item that the MDT may use. And then underneath that is a series of words that you would usually use to describe that item. But we're not allowed to use those. And she's told us this time that they're incredibly hard. Yes. So. And looking at the one that I have sat in front of me, <laughs> that is true. And me. Do you want to go first this week, Jo? Yeah, go on, I'll go yeah. first. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Go. This is something that comes on a sheet and it is, the sheet itself is pink. It helps to understand how something inside a person is beating. Is it an ECG? Um, it is. 
That was 18 seconds. 18 seconds, okay. The words I could not use were heart, rhythm, arrhythmia, paper, leads, chest or tracing, which are all of the words that immediately came to mind, so thanks, Tappy. All okay. right, so the time to beat is 18 seconds. Okay, I'm not confident. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So this item is something that I use every day. On it sits my keyboard Desk. and... Yes. Oh, wait. No, yes for me. <laughs> that, oh, wait, that's a yes for you. That's annoying. <laughs> How many Good seconds description. was uh, 11 seconds. Yay. How, what were you not allowed so to So I wasn't allowed to use ward, office, work, clinic, computer, sit, paper, dictate or letter. Wow, that was a long list. And now we've got a clue for you. You're now going to hear a sound and we'd like you to let us know what you think that sound is. You can contact us on Twitter, which is at MDT underscore podcast. Using the hashtag MDTeaser. Or on Facebook, and that's facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. And again, you can use the hashtag MDTeaser there. Or if you want to be secretive about it, you can email us directly through the website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And the person that gets this sound correct first... Gets an MDT mug. Yay. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.